Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women's Day podcast. This week we've tackled some serious issues from homelessness to the pros and cons of single sex education. But we have also been absolutely overwhelmed by musical talent. And we're joined live in the studio by a young singer called Coral and Rachel Hare, an incredibly talented harpist, also popped in as well. But first, here's what happened when we were joined by Zeba Clark or Zeba Kaleem or Madeline Conway. Why so many names? Uh, when I started writing, um, my first book was a romance and Zeba didn't seem like a very romantic writer's name. My grandmother was called Madeline Conway and the other temptation was I knew that if I was writing romance, she would be spinning in her grave because she was a very snooty reader. She was, a very, she was a big intellectual snob. So Madeline Conway was my first writing name when I started writing romances. So what should we call you today? Zeba, please. Okay, Zeba. <laughs> We're going to talk a bit more about your writing in just a moment. But first, just take me back to your early childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the States. Um, my parents met at Cambridge and then we went to Pakistan because my father was from Pakistan. And he got a job in the States. And so I grew up there and was at school there and uh, then moved to uh, UK uh, when I was about nine and uh, went to an all-girls boarding school. Very interesting. As I say, we will be talking about single-sex education a little bit later. But uh, you went to university in Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. What was it that that you really wanted to do? Uh, that's well. Always, I wanted to write. That's been the the big thing since I my very first story I wrote when I was about five, and my mum still has it. Um, and it's about a whiskey bottle that goes for a walk, eats a mushroom, and then re- realizes it's, it's poisonous. So it sticks a label on itself saying poison. And that was the moment when I thought, yeah, this writing thing, this is fun. (laughs) So you wrote throughout your childhood? Yes, totally. And how much of that was based on the experiences that you were going through? I'm I'm not necessarily thinking about the whiskey bottle in particular, but, you know, people, particularly young people, go through... um, pretty turbulent times sometimes and and writing can often be an outlet for that I think that's where I kind of got into fantasy much more Um, I mean I was a a classic reader in the sense that I read Narnia books Lord of the Rings and things like that my big passion for a while was the Black Stallion books and so I wrote lots of desert I came across a whole load when moving and there were all these awful uh, desert island books with instead of a boy and a horse there was a girl and a horse and races and it was a beautiful pattern Palomino, gorgeous horse. <laughs> so lots of horse books uh, that I kind of scribbled away um, and then Desert Island. And then as I got older, yeah, more angsty um, and I would not want to revisit some of my teenage writing at all. <laughs> Did you always keep a diary? Yes. Yeah. And you still do that? Yes. <laughs> so you always wanted to be a writer then. You went to university in Aberdeen, mm-hmm. as I say. Um what path did you take? After I left university, I became a journalist, uh, but a very kind of unusual journalist in the sense that I was doing industrial and um, specialist economic journalism. So first I got to write about things like refrigeration and um, <laughs> ships and uh, and all sorts of things to do with insurance. Um, and then I became a natural gas specialist. <laughs> Which pause for snigger, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So I'd go to parties. I was in my twenties, and it's, and you know I'd meet a bloke, and he'd say, "What do you write about natural gas?" Ha ha. So it was a, it was a good icebreaker, um, and then I I met this chap who um, uh, was about to go to China as a diplomat. And that kind of upset my plans a bit. Uh, and at that stage, I trained, I retrained as a teacher. 
Um, and I'd hated school, so it was the last thing I ever imagined I would be. Um, but I went into schools because you have before you train as a teacher, you have to kind of do sample days and prove that you've got the commitment to the vocation. And at that stage, I went into uh, a school, a, a sixth form college in Brighton, and it was like, why didn't I realise that this is one of the best jobs? You get paid to sit and talk about books all day. Fantastic. So uh, I trained as a teacher and I've been teaching for 20 years now. So what brought you over here? A job. Um, I'd been working in Brussels um, at a school there and uh, it was on a contract and the contract came to an end. So I was looking around for a job and I looked uh, on the internet. Um, I looked at the TES where the, all the teachers' jobs are and there was a school which was said King Williams College and I looked at the website and it was really pretty. <laughs> There's you know this beautiful beach and gorgeous pink skies because I think they had some poor guy out at dawn taking photographs of the school, and I thought that looks really interesting. And the job was head of department at King Bills, um, and that was definitely what I wanted to do. Um, and then I came to the school and I had two job interviews in the same week, one at a very uh, posh girls' school in Oxford and this one, and I was like. I don't know what which one to go for, and I I said to my husband, okay, so I've got the, I've got these two job offers. Which which one? Oxford Girls School, Hermione Land, because Hermione Emma Watson went there, um, and uh, or or the Isle of Man. And he said, let's give the Isle of Man a go. So that's how we ended up here. <laughs> so we know that you um, you write romantic fiction. You've been published mm -hmm. uh, romantic author. I just wonder how you start a romantic novel. I mean, how much do you draw on your own experiences? I'll be honest with you, not much. <laughs> <laughs> I think of a romantic fiction is really uh, like uh, there's sword and sorcery, which is fantasy, and there's romantic fiction, which is fantasy. Sometimes you get a mixture, mixture of the two. Um, there's a really mag magical writer, Naomi Novik, who writes dragon books, and they're very... There's basically a central romance between a guy and a, and a dragon. Um, and But basically it's romantic fiction. Uh, and the key thing is you start with a happy ever after. I'm, I've been quite cheeky with a lot of the romances I've written. And I basically stole from this really good writer I know of called Shakespeare. Because <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, I had three book contracts um, and I was like you've got to write a book and you've got 18 months to do it. You've got, I've, and I, I can't think of any plots or anything. Um, so much do about nothing was really helpful. Um, and 12th night has been pretty helpful. Uh, so, uh, but you obviously tweak and play and Shakespeare, he, he nicked his plots too. <laughs> so when and where do you write? How do you fit it into your daily schedule? Um, <clears throat> when I'm actually writing, the best way I find of writing is actually uh, in November, Every November, there's novel National Novel Writing Month, which is run. It started in the States, but it's worldwide now. So I always block off November and I say that is my main writing month. And the aim is to write 50,000 words in November. Uh, so I've done that about five or six times. And what it does is it gives you your first draft. So I plan beforehand. I'm in the middle of planning at the moment. Uh, and I do all sorts of maps and little bits of writing, like character-based stuff, and I get plots kind of roughly in my brain. And then literally November the 1st, I sit down, and usually if it's uh, a weekday, uh, from 8.30 till 10.30, and then um, if it's a Saturday or a Sunday, it's usually from 2 till, 2 till 4, 2 till 5. 
I was just going to say, being my daughter's teacher, you don't take November off, do you? No, 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 no. no that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'm in school <laughs> and marking and and doing and planning and everything like that. But uh, and I understand you've same. just got a contract to do young adult fiction. Yes. What made you want to make that move? Uh, well, I'd written these five romances uh, with the name Madeleine Conway. But for a long time, I'd kind of had this idea about uh, a teenager, a teenage boy who makes his dreams come true. And uh, at the time, I wrote it about 10 years ago. And at the time, there were a lot of young adult books coming out. There was a lot of uh, Harry Potter related stuff. The fantasy world was was very kind of everyone was in a school. And I thought uh, for me, Jove, the character, just he turned up in my brain. uh, And I think that very often happens to writers. Joe turned up and he was a typical teenager, but he also had tweaks and quirks. And he's a very individual kind of a boy. And of course, he wasn't going to do any of he's a normal kid at a normal school, not a boarding school or anything like that. And he his first dream was a Lamborghini. And then what would happen if you woke up and there was a Lamborghini in your drive? And you didn't have the keys and it was blocking your mum's way out of the house. And and then and so it was a real what if Joe came first, then the Lamborghini, because that was what he was dreaming about. And then he had a ropey friend who Silas who gets him into all sorts of trouble and it just escalated from there. So the story was there. And then also I was very naughty. I had a really good time because I took the names of students and teachers and I and characteristics and I just threw them all up in the air and and played with them and put them in the book and it was it was a pure release from writing romantic fiction which is quite strict in its conventions and I just put everything in so it ended up having Elizabethan scenes and a scene on a Turkish mountainside and all sorts of and nightclubs and Joe ends up going to Sardinia and uh, all sorts of things so it was like everything I'll put everything in it um, and then I put it away. I, I just kind of put it away because I started a master's in education <laughs> and I kind of forgot about it. So uh, and then I came and I, I was get, going through my computer files uh, last year and I f- came across the computer file, tidied it up and sent it out to a new uh, publishers. Um, and uh, they have said they're interested in going ahead with it. And that will be out as an ebook probably in the next two months or so. Zeba, I'm exhausted just listening to you. I'm also quite relieved, though, that you haven't got a notebook and pen with you because knowing that you do draw on real life experiences, I'm sure there are some characters in this room, particularly looking at Joe. Um, and oh, you know, picks on me, no, Zeba. That could have been a nice thing to say. It could oh, okay. have been. Okay. I mean, it could have been. But do you think be. that everybody does have a book inside them? Uh, I think everybody does have a book inside them, but they don't necessarily have the technique to get it out there. And I think that's the thing that is that people are really... Uh, they don't necessarily know how to go about the first steps of setting it up in their own brain. And also we all work differently. So uh, there are some people who can just write and it will come out and there will be more or less the stream of consciousness and you can shape it. And then there are others of us who have to kind of shape it a lot more before we sit down and write. Uh, And it's kind of getting, finding out the way to actually open up your voice and that's really important. How do you feel about condoms being handed out to teenagers at high school? I have mixed feelings about that. I'm not sure if handing them condoms doesn't encourage them into sexual activity too early or would it save unwanted pregnancies and possibly STDs? 
I don't mind because my daughter's um, just turned 17. I would have asked her to go on the pill now because so many people getting pregnant. I was 16 when I had my eldest and everything, so because we wouldn't go to the doctors and get them or anything. So, yeah, I don't mind. I don't really know how I feel about that. It depends on the person. Uh, well, it's better than having all these uh, illegitimate children about, isn't it? So I think, I think it's the best thing there is. Also for diseases. I think it's a good idea, yeah. I think anything that promotes safe sex is a good thing, to be honest with you. I can see the other side of the coin where people might think that handing out condoms is encouraging it, but I think kids these days, they're just going to do that sort of thing, I think. So better to be safe than sorry. I think probably we do need to be realistic and live in the real world. I don't think that that would lead to somebody having sex just because they were given a condom. I can see why it might be a bit controversial, however, but uh, I, think, I think they'd make lots of jokes about it and fill them with water and probably <coughs> throw them at each other. No, I don't think you should. Well, the age of consent is 16. I think you'd be encouraging it. Yeah, they should be handing out condoms to 13-year-olds because everything's getting younger and younger now. It's like, like them drinking before they're allowed to drink, having sex before they're supposed to have sex. Everything's getting younger. Well, I think it's more down to sex education, really, than just handing out condoms. Parents should be stepping up and speaking to their kids about contraceptives and or abstaining, shall we say. Well, they should be thinking about sex at 13. So I just think it's just encouraging. They need just education, I think. I think a lot of kids will take advantage of it. I think, personally, parents don't do enough. Too many people rely on teachers. It's much less awkward than going to the shop and buying them, I would say. And you can't go to like nightclubs and get them off the bar and stuff. So, yeah, I would say teachers are, would be the way to do it. I think if they've had the right education, I think I... I personally think it's not a bad thing. When I was in high school, I thought I was in, I was peer pressured actually into, into doing it by my friends. So it would make me feel a lot better if my teachers handed me condoms while I was in school. Yeah. But whether or not they'll use them when you give them to them is another thing. <laughs> Okay, so some differing opinions there. We're asking you, should condoms be available in the island's secondary schools? It is a question that's been debated in the Isle of Man a couple of times before, first in 2006 and more recently in 2011. And in that year in Timwald, the MHK Brenda Cannell asked the then Health Minister David Anderson whether he would revisit the department's policy not to supply free condoms to become uh, even more proactive in reducing the number of people diagnosed with HIV. Mr Anderson at that time said no and and to quote Isle of Man newspapers, he steadfastly refused to be drawn once again on the issue of providing free condoms to vulnerable groups and sexually active young people. Now, here's what the Department of Education and Children has to say on the matter today. Whilst condoms are not distributed or made readily available, schools take seriously their responsibility to educate about the role of condoms in the prevention of pregnancy and STI transmission. PSHE, Personal, Social, Health and Economic Education, provides an opportune time to do this while encouraging informed choices about sexual health and well-being. That's the opinion of the Department of Education and Children in response to our question this morning. We want to know now, is it time to bring up this subject in school once again? How do you feel about uh, condoms being made readily available in schools, Joe? 
I'm really mixed on this. Um, I suppose I can see it from both sides, definitely. Um, I, I can imagine my daughter's year using them as water balloons if they were handed out, <laughs> um, which would be a waste of money. Um, but also I can see why it would be a good idea because it'd be less embarrassing to, than going to a chemist and buying it themselves. Um, ah, a little bit mixed up on this one. I'm not quite sure if I'm honest. I think we absolutely should be giving out condoms in schools. I think everything we do in terms of sex education on the Isle of Man is about um, teaching young people to protect themselves, to not get pregnant. And if we are saying all of that, why aren't we providing the means to actually prevent it? I think it's just a no-brainer, in my opinion, for sixth formers, to put on that caveat. It's interesting you're talking about giving out. I mean, I think absolutely they should be available in secondary schools. I don't know about sort of giving them out. I think the whole idea of normalising them so people are very used to seeing them, it's not such a big deal anymore. People talking about it and surely having a bit more of a responsible attitude towards sex generally. Dr John, what do you think? Uh, I think I'm more with Joe. I, d- I do have very mixed feelings. Um, as a <laughs> professional, I suppose what I'm most uh, concerned about is uh, unwanted pregnancies and um, keeping people well from a sexual health point of view and from that perspective then I think the more we can do to uh, make available and as you say open in society the um, the availability of various forms of contraceptive uh, the better having said that I think as a dad and uh, as uh, a person of faith I have some problems with the over sexualization of society generally and I think that there are lots of um, things going on cumulatively which are um, uh, almost subliminally encouraging sexualization in, in society and that's from the media through to education through to uh, music through to all sorts of um, uh, stimuli that, that, that will uh, attract young people and I think adding to that um, the over-availability, and one could argue what over-availability is, of contraception uh, can arguably encourage the sexualization or the normalization of sexual uh, activity in, in, um, in schools. Joe, I think what Kate said before as well, she, you hit the nail on the head when you said sixth form. I think that's exactly the right age group that we yeah. should be aiming it at because of a parent of a 14-year-old who I know isn't as advanced as some other 14-year-olds, I think it would frighten her to be handed a condom. But we're not talking about handing them out. We're talking about them being made available. And I do think we run a risk of being so scared of talking about contraception and of showing children what contraception is. We're not getting it right at the moment, so surely no, something needs true. to change. And yeah. also, to, to go against slightly what John was saying... I've said it before and I'll say it again. Teenagers have sex and they're going to carry on having sex. Why don't we do something to stop them becoming ill, to stop them catching something and stop unwanted teenage pregnancies? I agree. However, there's a lot of naive children out there that aren't as fully advanced and I think it might possibly frighten them. But giving them a condom isn't going to make them have sex. It also may encourage thinking, well, what's wrong with me? Because if others are getting these, why am I? I, I, Obviously, I need to do something maybe about this. But I think giving them, or not giving them out, having them readily available has to go with the education to explain when they need to be used, how they're used, what they're for, and when you're ready, here they are, and they are not something to shy away from or be embarrassed about. Yes, I agree on that. People do have sex, of course, young people have sex, and, and actually there was a comment, I think, made earlier um, by one of the um, phone interviewees um, in terms of 13-year-old boys uh, being exposed. 13-year-old boys will think about sex, their hormones are developing, we have to recognise that, and, and, and I have no um, qualms about that. However... People also drink alcohol. 
people also take drugs. Uh, and to say that because people are doing it anyway, therefore we should just make uh, the ability for them to engage in that activity more widely available is as you would say, uh, Beth, on several occasions today, a no-brainer. Uh, I don't think there is uh, necessarily a follow-on for sexual activity. I think just because lots of young people are having sex and increasingly lots of young people are having sex without thinking the consequences through, I don't think that's a reason for making uh, sex and the opportunities to have sex. Uh, let's have some of your thoughts then. Frank says, yes, there should definitely be condoms in the island secondary schools. Starting in the staff room would be a good idea, he suggests. <laughs> Thank you for that. I work in a chemist, says Ben, and school kids already buy lots of condoms on their lunch hour. Uh, the gentleman just made it sound... You've been called a gentleman, Dr John. Uh, the gentleman time. just made it sound as though if they are given condoms, that suddenly makes sex readily available, which just isn't the case. Not what I said exactly. And uh, Elaine says, I feel very strongly that too much is being passed on to schools to do. What are the parents actually doing? Which is an interesting uh, point of view there. Yeah, we've had some on Facebook as well. I think they're all kind of with me and you, actually, Beth. Uh, Susie says, yes. Christine says, of course. And Amy says, absolutely. We can't change the fact that young people are having sex, so we should at least make sure they're protected and know how to stay safe. We do think it's only right to finish today's programme with our guest, Coral's new single. Coral, would you like to introduce it for us? I'm Carl, and this is Daisy Chain. I hope you like it.
Hi, I'm Mark Kermode and I listen to Women Today. Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. For me, the word homeless conjures up a really, really specific image. The cold and, and hungry person begging for spare change on the streets of a large city. But as that isn't a sight we often see over here, if ever... Does that mean that we don't have an issue with homelessness? Well, to talk about that this afternoon, we are joined in the studio by the Director and Centre Manager of Housing Matters Isle of Man, Neil Mellon. Neil, thanks very much for being here. You deal with this issue day in, day out, and I'm guessing by the very fact we have a charity working um, with the issue of homelessness that it is an issue over here. So when you think of the word homeless, Neil, what do you think of? Um, I would say... Up until a couple of years ago, I'd be guilty, like a lot of people, of thinking of the man, grubby, bearded, in rags, sleeping in a doorway, perhaps smelling of alcohol, uh, stale urine, untidy, unkempt. Uh, And it's just so not the way with the clients that we meet. What is the truth, then? Um, We have a significant number of people who need help with housing issues. And I think we have to look at our definition of homelessness, which is somebody who either doesn't have somewhere to live or is living in temporary accommodation. Uh, And that might be a car or a lorry cab or sleeping rough on a boat. Um, It's also people who are sofa surfing, living with friends from day to day, or perhaps sharing a, a garden shed with somebody, or somebody who is at home but is vulnerable either because of physical or mental um, bullying, harassment, threats. So do we have an idea of how many people would officially be classed as homeless on the Isle of Man as we speak at the moment? No. Nobody on the island has that information. Um, There's no legal responsibility on the government of the Isle of Man to provide emergency accommodation. So they don't. Um... The government does have a responsibility for people under the ages of of 18 and over 65, so they're dealt with differently. Um, But nobody captures that information. And part of that reason is pride. Nobody wants to own up to either being homeless or having difficulty with their accommodation. But, you know, this is a really, really small place, Neil. We're talking about, you know, something that's 30 miles long. How can someone end up with nowhere to live over here? We have a whole raft of situations. No day is the same. Um, so, for example, today we have had, we have seen six people with different issues. Four of them are women, which is interesting because that wouldn't be the norm. Um, we've taken probably over 20 calls and we've made over 20 calls to different people in relation to the work that we do. But the, the reasons why people have problems with homelessness... Um, could start with waking up beside your husband to find he's dead and suddenly the main breadwinner isn't there the person who's paid all the bills isn't there the person who knows how to get money out of the bank account isn't there to do it and have you had experience we've had experience with this yes um um, i've worked with a client recently who um is young middle-aged with children with advanced breast cancer who was being evicted because the children were too noisy. I have to say we've resolved that and the landlord actually was exceptionally positive and 
uh, welcoming of our advice and did everything possible to try and change that situation. Um, initially, when we met with this client, she had four weeks' notice of eviction. We got that extended initially to nine months, and then on the landlord decided that he was going to sell his property. It was proven too stressful, but agreed to work with us to find a buyer who would want to have a sitting tenant, and that's exactly what's happened, and the new landlord um, has agreed to keep that tenant in. So problem resolved, but that's taken many hundreds of hours of work. I'm interested in what you said about the fact that today you have seen four women and that is actually quite unusual because I'm sure I read somewhere um, that women are more likely to go under the radar when it comes to homelessness because they have maybe a bigger social circle, they might have more sofa options to sleep on. Is that the case? Um, My experience is we get more men calling in to see us. Now they might talk about having children, a lot will talk about having ex-partners or people that they're estranged from. but by far, we see more male clients than female. I'm really interested also in the fact you keep referring to the people you support as clients because it's almost as if it's more of a business arrangement rather than charity intervention. We are established as a charity on the island. We are Manx Charity. Um, but to be a registered charity, you're a registered company. But at the end of the day, these are people who are coming to us for a service, which is help, advice, support. Um, and that's what we offer so in terms of what Housing Matters Isle of Man can actually do, you've talked about the negotiations that you've had um, with landlords. What else can you provide? I mean, can you actually give somebody accommodation? We can't give accommodation. We don't own properties or have access to properties. What we do is we help people find accommodation or better accommodation um, by working with them, finding out what sort of properties they're after and where. We scour local newspapers for ads We devise our own uh, bulletin for properties that are available and use that with both the clients and with professionals. So our information sheet, the accommodation list that we put out weekly, will go out to professionals in social care, in education, in health care, mental health, out to the prisons, etc., I'm really intrigued by that. You say the the prison. Do you do quite a lot of work up there? We do one visit a month. Um, I go up on a Monday once a month and spend an afternoon there, usually about three hours, and we'll see between three and five uh, prisoners. These Normally this will be people who are coming up for release and we know and the evidence shows is that if prisoners come out and they know that they've got accommodation to go to or something set up for them to have that meeting to get their accommodation quickly, they know about their benefits, then they're less likely to reoffend. You've talked about how many hours it can take to sort out a specific problem for one of your clients. Have you got a rough idea of, of how much it costs on a, on a person-to-person basis from the charity's point of view? We've, we've not worked it out on a charge per head, and I think that would be a bit hard to do. We can see a client and have their problem resolved in 30 minutes. That gives them all the advice, all the information that they need. They're self-sufficient. They can go out and get the accommodation from the information we give them. Equally, we can have an interview last. The longest single interview was four and a half hours, at which stage we had to terminate and say, you have to leave because we now have to try and put things into action for you. Um, 
most people we can resolve in a one-off situation so it's very much a one-stop shop but we can see people on repeat visits um, but again some of those cases will go on much longer currently working with a lady in her 80s who's facing eviction has never missed a payment never had a problem but because of consequences it's facing eviction and there's a lot of hours being put in to work on and off island to try and prevent that would you say that your job is rewarding or frustrating? Oh, the reward, the job is exciting. It's challenging. Um, I can use skills from my background in problem solving, and it's all very much about problem solving. Even if we don't know the answer, we will go out and find the answer. One of the challenges is there's no book on the shelf that says the answer to problem housing problems or the housing to social problems and the housing to... The problem with uh, relationships, we tend to make the rules up as we go along. We find an answer to each problem. You say um, you can refer back to, to some of your background, and that was largely in nursing. So how did you get into this job then, Neil? I was uh, a director with the Housing Matters for a number of years. I retired from Nobles in August of last year. Um, I went into retirement mode for all of six weeks, which was great fun. Um, and my wife thought she had me then to do all the jobs I'd never caught up with in 39 years. <laughs> Our organisation, Housing Matters, was actually uh, looking at having to close. We just weren't financially viable at that stage. We were having to take all the appropriate steps that every registered company has to take to um, remain legal and remain functional. Our uh, manager at that time, who we had for many years, Joe Chapman, who you might remember, you might have met before, she returned home to England uh, for personal reasons. And it was highly unlikely that as an organisation we could recruit a manager who would come in, be in probation, with the prospect of us closing the company and expecting them to stay on to close it professionally and hand over to somebody else, if we could find anyone to do it. Um, I was retired, I had a bit of time, and effectively I got parachuted into that role for six months. Uh, that was to finish at Easter. I liked it too much. My wife's still trying to forgive me for extending it, um, but I, I do get a lot of satisfaction from it, and I know that we make a difference. So now we're talking about single-sex education, boys' schools and girls' schools. And I think it's probably something that we all do have an opinion on. And while there's still some stigma attached to single-sex schools and definitely stereotypes attached to them as well, there has been a recent surge of interest in all boys' and all girls' schools. Now, it's not something currently on offer on the island, but we want to know what you think. Is single-sex education a good idea? You can text 166177 or email womentoday at manxradio.com to share your gut reaction to that or your own personal experience as well and Joe, you went to an all-girls school so I'm assuming that you're for it then? No not necessarily um, I had a really good experience at my girls school and I think this is where this is actually going to come into our conversation a lot today is your own individual experience of course um, I had a great time there and what the well, we used to walk around with like almost this oxy ten. it was like tipex on your spots and things because we didn't care because we didn't care what we looked like and it was great the fact that there was no boys there that we felt that we had to dress up to or, or look the part towards um, however as, no sorry 
I jumped to that first rather than the actual education. That's not good, <laughs> is it? But when it comes to education, um, I think we had less distractions. So I actually do think that um, we concentrated an awful lot better. My kids both go to um, a mixed school, so this is where I am kind of sitting on the fence because I think they're getting a really broad experience of obviously being educated around girls and boys. But I do believe the one thing that helped me through my education was the lack of distraction. I really do believe that. Um, I totally agree with you, um, but it's an interesting subject really because I'm in two heads about this one depending on whether I'm thinking about it from my boy's point of view or from my daughter's. Um, my eldest son in his first year he was in a class of um, 21 17 of those uh, were boys and honestly I used to go in there sometimes and help read I left with a beard there's that much testosterone in the room it was just absolutely wild contrastly um, my middle son was in a class where there were more girls it was just a much calmer much more it just seems like a much more productive environment so I kind of think from a from the boys' point of view, I think I'd prefer them to be in a in a mixed environment. But from uh, my daughter's point of view, maybe sort of going on my own experience when I was at a single sex school for a little while, and then they introduced boys. That, that was, was yeah. your downfall. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. It depends on the person that you are, doesn't it? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I really enjoyed school. I went to mixed school all the way up, and I think it was really, really good for me to have um, both boys and girls. I think, um, yeah, I'm sure there was some distraction, but there was enough distraction from girls and gossip and that kind of way that teenage girls can be. I think that on its own, on its own, would have been too much. And I think there were too much attention or distraction by the boys was too much as well. I think it was really good for me to have that balance. Instinctively, I'm not really a massive fan of single sex schools because I don't really understand why you would want to go to one or send your child to one when for the rest of their lives they're going to have to mingle in a society of both men and women and why you don't want them to get used to that at an early stage and learn to um, adapt in that environment. Now, interestingly, both our guests today, Emma Quirk and Zeba Clark, you both went to all-girls schools. Um, Emma, what's your point of view on this? Um... I'm similar to you because I have a daughter and a son and I would really like my daughter to go to an all-girls school because we were very focused learning. Um, We didn't worry about dressing up. We used to drive past the mixed school on the way to school and they would be rolling up their skirts. We didn't care until the last 10 minutes of the day when it was a really quick change before we left. Um, But during the day, it was very focused learning. We could ask questions. We 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 weren't scared about being laughed at by the boys or trying to make a good impression. However, I I kind of think that my boy needs to understand girls. He needs to understand female relationships and to remove him from that. And seeing some of the all-boys schools around my girls' school, too much testosterone, too too physical in the playground sometimes. And I don't know. I don't know. I'm glad that there isn't the option on the island because I don't want to make that decision. Zeba, what are your thoughts? Well, I just remember... Uh, finding school really peculiar because I went to co-ed school until I was uh, nine and then I went to boarding school for the rest of my schooling and I remember really vividly um, an English lesson where the teacher perhaps didn't have as much classroom control as she should we were about 14 or 15 so you know peak puberty and a gardener walked past the window and the entire class ran to the window and climbed on the chairs and they were like, you know, Garfield on a car. Like, there's a man! And I just thought, this is a bit peculiar. So I think 
But for both girls and boys, there are there are downsides to that segregation of sexes. And certainly as a mum, I'm happy my boys went to. I've got the Diet Coke advert going through my head right now. 11 (laughs) o'clock, you know, outside, but a gardener, you know, really. And he was quite cute. You know, I'll give him that. (laughs) Well, we'd like to know your thoughts on this. We've already got a number of uh, texts and emails here. Nick from the Sweet Shop in Castletown said he was educated at a private boarding school, boys only. Horrendous. He only discovered girls at 20. Oh, so much wasted time. And uh, Anne has texted in to say, I went to a school where the boys had their building and the girls their school, but they were so close that we had a joint playground on the field, so we mixed at break time, which seemed to work really well. I think that's a really, really good idea. Very good for spin the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) I think the only problem with spitting academically, and this comes purely from my own experience, um, at university I had a friend um, who had been at an all-boys school, and it was only when he got to university at 19 he said to me, I didn't realise girls could be as intelligent or if not more intelligent than me. I just thought that disappointing if you get to 19 and not realise that. And we've also had some comments on Facebook. Karen says, I went to a mixed infant junior school and girls private high school. For me personally, this was a good mix of education. Teenage years and school are enough to cope with without worrying about the opposite sex. I still played with boys and girls out of school, so wasn't missing out socially speaking. Joe. Um, Andrea says, went to an all-girls school, loved it. And Isla says, I was never a fan in theory, but now having a boy and seeing how differently boys and girls learn, I can certainly see advantages. Well, our guest this afternoon has been described by BBC Radio 2's Mark Radcliffe as a superb Highland harper. She is from the village of Ullapool, but no stranger to the Isle of Man, as she comes over here once a month to teach the Manx harp to youngsters. She's gained a reputation worldwide for being an ambassador of Manx music on the Celtic harp and is going to be performing early next month with her trio at the Centenary Centre in Peel. She is Rachel Hare, and just before we speak to her, let's hear her in action. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Just tell us about that piece of music we were just hearing. Yeah, that's it. In one of the tracks from our new album, we released a new album called Three a few months ago. And three means three in Scottish Gaelic, but also in Manx Gaelic as well. So, so do you speak Scottish Gaelic? Um, I speak a little bit of it, enough to kind of get by. So, But um, yeah, that piece is a tune called The Duke of Fife's Welcome to Deeside, and it's one of my favourite tunes ever, actually. It's an incredible sounding instrument, yeah. the harp. When did you first start <laughs> playing? Um, I started playing when I was 10 years old, when I was a youngster up in the Highlands, and yeah, just kind of continued on from there, and eventually went on to study music at uni, and it just became my whole life, really. So what is the difference between a Celtic harp and an ordinary harp? Well, there's a few differences. There's kind of quite technical differences. The Celtic harps are a little bit more portable, so they can handily fit in the back seats of your cars. With the harps that you have in orchestras, you need a full-on Volvo estate and a lot of muscles to move them around. <laughs> so you um, have got a harp next to you. This is yes. a Celtic harp. Yep, this is a Celtic harp. Yep, and it's got it's got 34 strings. The ones in the orchestras tend to have a lot more strings. And I also have these things called levers, um, which are little metal things which give me extra notes. And on the 
harps in the orchestras, they have pedals instead of levers, which is a bit crazy. You see harp players playing in orchestras and their feet are moving around, pressing pedals as they play. So, If you can yeah. play one, can you play the other? Um, you kind of can. I could get a tune out of the orchestral harp, but I wouldn't be able to play the big pieces that they would play in orchestras without a lot of work. How difficult is it to learn to play at all? Well, the great thing about the harp is that it's very hard to make it sound bad, which is a good, it's a good, especially good if you're just beginning. It's kind of like an upright piano. If you imagine the piano notes, we've got strings instead of the piano notes. So you can kind of pluck away a tune. We had, yeah, the presenter earlier was just came in and gave a little bit of Frere Jaca. Stu Peters Stu did Peters, very yeah. well. He really, it was impressive. I was impressed. I, yeah, really impressed that you could play it at all yeah if you've got generally if you've got a musical bone you'll be able to pick something out but it's a little bit more tricky to get two hands going at the same time that's where it kind of gets a bit harder joe is itching to have a go i'm so tempted you just go and have a go there while we keep talking (laughs) i'm just um trying to think of of people that i've seen playing the harp and i can only think of one man who i've come across who plays it would you say it's really a woman's instrument stereotypically in scotland and kind of ireland isle of man and in the orchestral world it's kind of thought as being a women's instrument but nowadays there's a lot more kind of men starting to play i've got a few young male students who are really doing pretty awesome things actually on the harp so but stereotypically it has got that kind of image we're going to be talking a little bit more about your teaching over here later but i just wondered how you first ended up over here yeah, well, my partner's from the Isle of Man. We met at a music festival in Wales, goodness, about seven, eight years ago now. And I kind of started coming over and visiting him. And then eventually kind of the heart players found out I was coming over. So I used to do odd lessons and kept on kind of coming back and forth. And then my boyfriend, Adam, decided to move over to Scotland and... He did that, and then a few weeks later, they organised me to be the harp teacher on the island. So he left the island, and I ended up getting a job here. So I spend more time here than he does. Well, um, your partner, Adam, is also the star of a viral video that's doing the rounds. Tell us about that. (laughs) Um, He's part of a band called McLear, and their video on Facebook has got well over a million hits, well over a million views. And it was just, they call it, it's been kind of nicknamed the fiddlesticks tune. One guy starts playing fiddle and then Adam comes in and starts playing and it's it's a good one. Look it up on Facebook. They're a group called McLear and yeah, my boyfriend's the one who has the tools kind of going in the background because he's wearing flip-flops. It was in Lorient. It was hot at the time, so that's his excuse. <laughs> now, I did say that you are known as a worldwide expert on playing Manx music on the harp. Where have you been to spread the word? Yeah, well, I've. Um, when you're a harp player, you get asked, obviously, to do concerts and things like that, but a lot of it is to do with teaching. There's harp festivals, Celtic harp festivals that happen all around the world. So I've been to Moscow and Russia, Spain, France, uh, America... Switzerland, Italy, um, and in many of these places I've taught Manx students. So I've taught literally hundreds of Celtic harpists Manx music. So the tunes are being played worldwide now, which is really exciting. Why do you think harp music is so popular internationally, particularly Manx pop music? I guess, um, you know, the kind of Celtic music thing is always kind of, it's always on the up just now, I kind of feel. And with the harp, it's quite... As I was saying, it's quite an easy instrument to pick up. And a lot of people have this kind of view that it's the angel's instrument. A lot of people will say... I tend to get a lot of adult students who come to these festivals and they're like, it's always been my dream since I was a child to play the harp. And 
yeah, they got older and they decided to take it up. So yeah. when you go to these far flung places, you always mm. take some Manx souvenirs with you. Which yes. ones? <laughs> I usually take I I'm kind of known for when I teach that, you know, we have to have like a kind of sugar rush break halfway through. You know, we'll learn the melody, have a bit of sugar rush. So yeah, been known to take Manx fudge and kind of a wee jar of Manx knobs. And a flag as well to like put above above where I teach so they know where they are. <laughs> No, I'm not saying it. You're looking at me to say something. I'm not saying it. I'm behaving myself, Beth. Okay. I just thought maybe you had a question, Jane. Maybe save it for later. Um, I mean, as hearing you travel all over the harp, I mean, despite the fact that this one that you have next mm-hmm. to you is slightly smaller and more portable, mm-hmm. it's still not the easiest thing to carry around. No, they're not the easiest things. Although, luckily, I have... My one's actually a little bit shorter than this one. Um, and I have a flight case that it kind of fits round it but yeah you do get kind of people stopping and asking you what's that at the airport and I'm just just trying to keep my head down when it's 6am in the morning you don't really want to have two big long conversations with people Thanks as always to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at MR Women Today on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock. Sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.